I'm Rosa Kay, and I'm talking with Dr. Marcella Frank. She is an attending pulmonologist and sleep medicine specialist at Deborah Heart and Lung Center in Burlington County. And let's talk about our current national obsession, sleep or the lack of it. A YouGov survey of 1,300 Americans, huge majority, 89%, would like to get seven hours of sleep a night. Coincidentally, that's also what the Mayo Clinic recommends as an appropriate minimum of sleep. Or is it seven hours? Is that what we should be aiming for? Well, historically, seven and a half to eight hours is what we've all been raised to believe, and that's actually true. Unfortunately, many people get only six hours of sleep, and this has to do with what's happening currently in, in our culture as, and the way we function as human beings in this current um, age. Seven hours is a reasonable goal since most people get only six, but truly human adults need seven and a half to eight hours of sleep. How does that shut-eye requirement vary across our lifespans? So the number of hours of sleep vary tremendously. Children, very young children, need 14 to 15 hours of sleep per day. So when you're looking at children in elementary school that are being channeled into a lot of activities, many of those children are actually sleep deprived. When you get into adult years, we're looking at generally seven and a half to eight hours. But if you consider adolescence, they're between children and adults, and most adolescents are sleep deprived because of social activities, because of curricular activities because of studying and homework. And once we get to be an elderly human, six hours is generally enough, although that's questionable because many elderly people nap during the day. In fact, 85% of mammalian species are polyphasic. Polyphasic means you sleep in more than one block of time. And for people that end up having hours where they're working in the middle of the night and also working during the day, having your sleep broken into two sections can be very helpful. Dozing off and on for a few minutes here and there is not necessarily restoring the good quality sleep that you need. So what happens to our bodies when we're sleeping? We have several stages of sleep, non-REM sleep and REM sleep. And that's the generic distribution, although there are three stages of non-REM sleep. And interestingly, there are different physiologic changes that happen during each of those stages. So, for example, melatonin production. There are a variety of hormone productions that vary across the day and the night. Cortisol production tends to decrease during sleep hours. Melatonin tends to rise during sleep hours. Testosterone tends to rise during sleep hours. So there are a variety of changes that happen. The problem with it is that because we are a 24-7 society, some of these changes happen with sleep and some of them happen with dark and night because the circadian rhythm for humans is to sleep at night, whereas some species sleep during the day. So consequently, these hormone levels vary depending on when you're sleeping and when you're awake, as well as dark versus light. This is part of where we have gone into what we call desynchrony. In other words, our sleep schedule is not synchronized with the internal rhythm of our hormones. And consequently, there's an increase in many diseases for people that work shift work or for people who have insufficient sleep. The other thing with sleep is urine production is decreased. Salivary production is decreased, so we're making less saliva. Swallowing is suppressed. Every muscle in your body is paralyzed during REM sleep. 
And the reason for that is so that you don't act out your dreams. Of course, you still need one breathing muscle, which is the diaphragm, so that you don't die during REM sleep. And the eye muscles are moving. That's why they call it rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep. There are many, many things that happen during sleep physiologically to us. You had mentioned cycles of sleep, phases of sleep. The circadian rhythm has to do with the propensity to sleep versus the propensity to be awake. So in general, there are periods of decreased alertness that happen during the 24-hour cycle. The, the deepest area of decreased alertness happens between 2 and 4 in the morning, and this is you know, typically what they call the dead of night. So people are the sleepiest, and this is the time when people who work shift work have a difficult time staying awake during those hours. But interestingly, there's a second dip of alertness that happens in the afternoon, about 2 to 4 o'clock. So we run on a 12-hour cycle. That dip in the afternoon is not just because you've had lunch or because you want to get out of work. It's because of a natural circadian dip in alertness. So theoretically, that suggests that we are really not monophasic sleepers as humans tend to be with being awake all day and asleep at night. But perhaps we, like other species, have been designed to be polyphasic. In other words, a nap in the afternoon is responding to a natural physiologic need. Unfortunately, most of our jobs don't let us do that. So siesta time. Yes. We've gotten away from that, and yet that was a prevalent part of a lot of cultures. And it still is. So for those cultures, it certainly is adaptive to be able to rest during the hottest part of the day, but there's a circadian push to actually do that. So those societies are in many ways responding to the natural physiologic need more than, for example, what we typically do in the United States. What's happening in your brain when you're sleeping? Well, first of all, there's a lot we don't understand about sleep. The entire specialty of sleep is only about 40 years old from the time they discovered brain waves changing during sleep. So this is a very new area of science as well as medicine. But what we do know is that there are stages of sleep that are restorative. We believe that memories are incorporated during REM sleep which is the dream stage of sleep. We know from research that was published in April 2018, which was quite groundbreaking, that there's a system in the brain that clears out proteins such as beta amyloid, which builds up in the brains of people that have Alzheimer's disease. So what they demonstrated was one night of sleep deprivation actually caused a 5% increase in beta amyloid in the brain. That was just one night of losing sleep. It was a 31 hours of sleep deprivation. They also discovered a system in the brain called the glymphatics, which is kind of like the lymphatic system in the body, but it's called the glymphatics. And what it does is it clears beta amyloid out during sleep. So essentially, the brain is healed and refreshed during sleep. If you're not getting enough sleep, you're clearly not letting your brain heal the way it should. And Part of that is an increased risk of Alzheimer's, we believe. This is really very early research. All right, we're going to get into some of these risks, but let's talk about the immediate biological response then to to lack of sleep. Toddler misses sleep, toddler acts out. Sleep deficits across different ages will manifest differently. So you're right. With children, they tend to get hyperactive, they tend to get irritable, and consequently, sometimes it's hard to recognize that a child is actually tired because they are so hyperactive, they appear to be very awake. On the other hand, when you get to be an adolescent and an adult, the manifestation is more sleepiness that people have. The sleepiness tends to be at quiet times, uh, sitting, reading, watching television, having a, a, a boring conversation, perhaps driving. 
And the driving, of course, is very important. We know that there are many accidents that happen in adolescence because of sleep deprivation and being tired. So the tiredness is a manifestation for adolescents and adults that something is wrong. It could be a physical problem or it could be lack of sleep. And frequently what, when people say, how can I tell if I'm sick, if there's a problem, or if it's just that I need more sleep? And the first rule of thumb is get an extra hour of sleep every night for about a week and see how much better you feel. And if you feel significantly better or perhaps normal, then it was more sleep that you needed. Then you have control of that symptom. You have control of the sleepiness. The other issues that sleep deprivation cause, particularly for adults, is irritability, lack of patience. It's very easy for parents to lose their patience with children when the parents are not getting enough sleep. And sometimes the parents are not getting enough sleep because the children are not getting enough sleep. So the entire cycle just feeds on itself in a very negative way. The impacts of these sleep deficits, the cumulative effect is what I'm talking about here. Longer lasting effects on health. The effect of sleep deprivation is cumulative. So the longer you are sleep deprived, the more severe the sleep deprivation is, the more stress there is on the body. So the way the body responds to sleep deprivation is like any other stress. The blood pressure increases, the heart rate increases, cortisol levels increase. Cortisol is a stress hormone that's produced by the adrenal gland when you're under any kind of stress. And people don't realize that sleep deprivation is a stress that increases cortisol levels. So the effect of higher cortisol levels is increasing weight and increasing blood sugar. So that means there's an increased risk of obesity and diabetes in people that are sleep deprived. So when you look at the long-term consequences, the health consequences are frequently related not only to the sleep deprivation per se, but to the consequences of the sleep deprivation, which is chronically elevated cortisol levels and, and progressive obesity. Bad sleep, sleep apnea, compromised sleep quality, sleep deprivation, certainly worsens any of the physiologic functions, and that includes an increased risk of blood pressure that's harder to control, coronary artery disease leading to heart attacks, blockages in the blood vessels that lead to strokes. Everyone is familiar with high cholesterol levels and blood pressure and smoking as risk factors for heart disease, but sleep problems are a significant risk factor also. Why aren't we sleeping enough? How did something so natural become so stressful for us to achieve? If you look back historically, when we functioned as an agricultural society or a hunting society and electricity wasn't available, we slept based on light. People got up at dawn, they went to bed shortly after it got dark, whether it had to do with the cost of candles or being bored in the dark or whatever the case was. But people used to get more sleep in those years. Now, we have not evolved as an organism that much over the past one to 200 years. So consequently, the amount of sleep that people got in the past, we probably need somewhere around that amount on a regular basis. But we now have electricity that can keep us awake and function because we have light available and we don't have to burn candles. We have the internet, we have television, we have social networks, we have many activities that are clearly, according to most people, more important than sleep. And they don't realize how actively the body is healing to let the rest of your life be more functional and healthy. 
So because we don't have to burn candles, we burn them at both ends. What a good analogy. Yes, that's exactly what we do. Napping, even if it's not deep REM, super restful sleep, does it help? I mean, do certain neurons shut down just when you lie down, close your eyes in a dark room? It's actually more than neurons shutting down because when you when you take a nap, your entire body is essentially relaxed. Your brain is relaxed. We know that when people nap, generally 20 to 30 minutes, there's an improvement in their level of alertness. We recommend that naps be no longer than 30 minutes because there tends to be a grogginess that happens after that, uh, essentially what we call sleep inertia, where the body just has a hard time to get going. Now, that typically resolves after 30 to 40 minutes, but if you needed to take a nap and immediately become very sharp, it would be preferable to have a nap that's no more than 30 minutes rather than napping, say, for 40 minutes or 60 minutes. On the other hand, if you're using this as a polyphasic stage of sleep where you don't get enough sleep at night and you want to get the other two, three, four hours that you've missed at night, then clearly you're going to sleep longer. And that's really more than just a nap. There is research that was done on NASA astronauts and also on military pilots that if they napped for 40 minutes their performance was increased by 35% and their alertness was increased by 100%. So consequently, built-in naps can be very helpful for certain people with their jobs, but also with life. Even after a 10-minute nap, people are refreshed and restored. And we don't fully understand what's happening during that nap because you're not asleep long enough to get into, for example, dream sleep, which people think is the ultimate stage of sleep. But there clearly are restorative functions that happen with all stages of sleep. It may just be a matter of shutting down and letting your brain rest and reorganize a little bit. But, the, but even the power nap, the 15-minute nap, can be helpful. And I think we're going to see more of the acknowledgement that naps can be very beneficial for people under certain circumstances. Define nap, because to me, to, to close your eyes for 20 minutes, I'm not going to sleep for 20 minutes. That's just not happening. I may feel like I may have been thinking and mulling things the whole time, and yet I do feel better when I get up, even though I will swear, well, I didn't sleep. Did I still nap? I mean, was that still useful? You rested. So there is research that says just spending the time in bed and shutting down does have beneficial effects. Catching up on lost sleep. There's been a lot of discussion, and I think this is an area of debate in your field. Can you catch up for lost sleep by sleeping in on weekends? You can't bank sleep. In other words, you can't get a lot of sleep and then withdraw it when you are sleep deprived. On the other hand, you can make up sleep. The brain is very forgiving. And so when you've been sleep deprived, if you can get enough sleep one or two nights, it makes a tremendous difference in your functional ability. Whether that has long-term health benefits or not, no one knows because we don't have longitudinal studies to determine that. Historically, from a behaviorist standpoint, we've taught people that have insomnia to not try to get more sleep on the weekends because it throws off the sleep-wake cycle that they have. So there are people that are very sensitive to changes in, in the number of hours that they sleep and the time that they go to bed and the time they get up. On the other hand, there are people that are more liberal as far as being able to sleep at other times. I have always felt that if you're sleep-deprived during the week, It makes sense to get more sleep on the weekend rather than being sleep-deprived seven days per week. 
and recent research fortunately has corroborated my opinion that says getting more sleep on the weekend is a good thing in your health if you're sleep deprived during the week. Is it ever unhealthy to sleep too much? There is research that says people that sleep too many hours have an increased risk of health problems and earlier death. I don't think we understand fully what that is. One of the theories is that maybe these people are sleeping longer because they have health issues that are causing them to sleep longer and therefore shortening their life or increasing other medical problems. There's a a situation that's genetic called short sleeper and long sleeper. And basically, you are programmed for the amount of sleep that you need in order to be fully rested and restored. So the short sleeper may only need six good quality hours of sleep. The average person, seven and a half to eight hours. The long sleeper may actually need nine to 10 hours. So the question is, if you're responding to the way you are genetically built and sleeping longer, is that still a bad thing? Or is it only bad if you're sleeping more than you truly need? We really don't have all those answers yet. Shutting down for shut eye. How did we lose that skill? How do we find our personal snooze button? Because we're talking about adults who have had a lifetime to master getting to sleep, not knowing how to do it anymore. You know, it's very interesting because those of us that have children, you know, we try to get everything lined up properly for the child, assuming that we know the right things. So so the typical child might have dinner, they might read a little bit or watch television or play a game, have a bath, have a snack. Someone reads them a book when they go to bed and they go to sleep. So consequently, they have a bedtime routine that tells the brain it's getting to be time to sleep. Now, the darkness helps the pineal gland to produce melatonin. So by keeping the lights dark and dim, you're allowing your body to kick into the gear that your brain needs from a chemical standpoint with the melatonin to help you to go to sleep. We as adults have limited routines that we do during bedtime. We'll be on the computer, we'll be running around doing laundry, we'll be on the phone, we'll be working up until the last minute before you go to bed. And then you expect the brain to all of a sudden just shut off and go to sleep. And it's really not that easy. The brain has to be trained to do the right thing. So the proper environment, such as cool rooms, people tend to sleep better in than a warm environment, comfortable sleep surface, of course, a quiet environment. So we tend to sleep better in dark, quiet, and cool. That's the optimal situation. But by the same token, you have to program your brain to be ready to shut down. So for those of us that lay in bed and you're worrying about all the things that you didn't get done or all the things that you need to do the next day, the racing thoughts and the busy mind in and of itself can interfere with you falling asleep. So even in the best circumstances, if you're getting in bed at a reasonable time and setting eight hours aside to sleep, you may end up not sleeping that entire time. So insomnia means difficulty falling asleep or difficulty staying asleep. Insomnia is not a disease. Insomnia is a symptom of something. And it may have to do with side effects from medications. It may have to do with uh, physical stresses, mental illness, pain, acid reflux, the environment not being conducive to sleeping. So getting the brain trained to go to sleep and having a routine before bedtime can be very helpful. 
And of course, everyone knows that caffeine helps to increase alertness. So if you have caffeine too close to bedtime, that can also make it difficult to fall asleep. The, the half-life of caffeine varies from person to person. Some people, and, and I have people tell me this every day, they can have a cup of coffee or tea before they go to bed and have no difficulty falling asleep. And there are other people that have caffeine in the mid-afternoon and they can't fall asleep. So the, you have to know your body and you have to pay attention to the way your body responds to circumstances. And that includes worry, stress, uh, light in the environment, caffeine, alcohol. Alcohol can help people to fall asleep faster, but after you're asleep, when the alcohol levels drop, people tend to wake up. So they end up with the maintenance insomnia. In other words, they fall asleep easily, but they can't stay asleep. And so when people have difficulty staying asleep, it can be from, again, physical discomfort, snoring, breathing disturbances, sleep apnea, noise in the environment, being hungry being too full. So if you have a large meal before you go to bed, sometimes it's difficult to sleep and there's an increased risk of reflux if you go to bed with a full stomach. I'm Rosa Kay and I'm talking with Dr. Marcella Frank. She is an attending pulmonologist and sleep medicine specialist at Deborah Heart and Lung Center in Burlington County. So everybody's got their personal list then of things they should do or not do within how many hours of sleep? Again, that varies. So as far as alcohol goes, women tend to metabolize alcohol slower than men. So consequently, the alcohol needs to be smaller quantities and further away from bedtime. As far as caffeine goes, you need to experiment for yourself and determine what that is. Exercise revs up your body. It increases the heart rate. It increases your body temperature. If you're exercising too close to bedtime, you're activating the sympathetic nervous system, which is saying stay awake, and you're increasing your body temperature. We tend to fall asleep as our body temperature drops. So many people recognize that when they start getting tired at night, they get cold. And that has to do with the body temperature dropping naturally. If you exercise at least four hours before bedtime or you take a warm bath, that increases the body temperature. And then several hours later, later, the body temperature drops and it's preparing you to go to sleep. I tend to be a pragmatist rather than a behaviorist. So my feeling is whatever works, as long as it's not harmful for you or someone else, that's probably a good routine for you whereas behaviorists have strict rules for what you can do and what you can't do. I'll give you an example. If you have difficulty falling asleep because you can't shut your brain down, it makes sense then to not lay in a dark, quiet room trying to force your brain to shut down because it just won't happen. So consequently, distracting yourself with something that is engaging but not interesting can be helpful. I use an example. It would be nice to have a book on your night table that you never finish because it's so boring that you fall asleep each time you start reading it. Television is designed to hold your interest. It's really hard to ignore what's on television when you're laying in bed. So if people need to watch television so that they're not worrying and their mind isn't racing because of one or another problem, what I tell people to do is watch something that's not interesting, just so that your mind is distracted from yourself, but not so engaged that you need to see what's going to happen next. And it goes without saying, checking your social media on your cell phone is not going to be that boring, unchallenging activity. 
But it's so easy to just go in and say, oh, let me check my emails. Oh, let me check my Facebook. Isn't that a cute video of the dog? And all of a sudden, an hour or two has passed, and now you've lost that time of sleep. So it's very difficult when you're on social media, when you're on the electronic devices, because again, like television, they are very entertaining. They are designed to do that, to hold your interest. So you have to find what works for you that, again, is slightly engaging but not so engaging that you need to stay awake in order to do that activity. Now, there are some sleep experts who would say no electronics at all because of the blue light. Yes, and there's a blue light blocker app that you can put on your devices that will literally block the blue light, but you're still able to function on the device. So many people are reading on electronic devices now instead of reading books. Again, you've got the light that's blasting on your eyes, which can suppress your internal melatonin production. That's part of the the problem with the blue light. A lot of people are taking melatonin, and that can be useful if you need melatonin. Elderly people have decreased melatonin production, so for some people, melatonin at bedtime can be very helpful. Most people in this country are taking more melatonin than they need if they use melatonin. We only need about 0.3 milligrams before bedtime and generally in the evening. Melatonin that the pineal gland makes is saying to you, it's getting dark and it's time for you to go to sleep. Bright light suppresses melatonin production. So we have every light in the house on, which is making the brain think it's the middle of the day, and it tends to produce less melatonin. So having dim light at night before bedtime helps to tell your brain it's getting dark, and it helps the pineal gland to produce its own melatonin. If you are melatonin deficient or if you just can't live without the bright light, melatonin supplementation can help to prime the system to say, hey, it's getting dark. Because typically, when does it get dark? Well, it depends on whether it's daylight savings time or not in parts of the country. But generally, it's starting to get dark in the early evening hours. So that small dose of melatonin primes the body to recognize it's getting to be nighttime and you need to start doing some routine bedtime rituals in order to get to sleep. Larger doses of melatonin do have a bit of a sedating effect. Nobody knows what the right dose of melatonin is. Now, we do know that melatonin can be very helpful in jet lag and in crossing time zones because you're now switching very rapidly from sleeping at night to sleeping during what would physiologically be your day, although it's night in the new time zone. So melatonin has been shown to be very helpful for those type of adjustments. Any long-term disadvantage from taking melatonin? We are really not aware of any disadvantage. Uh, There are no detrimental side effects that we have been able to determine by research at this time. So it's not a bad option if you're having difficulty sleeping, at least to try it. Most of the -the over-the-counter sleep aids have an antihistamine, and typically diphenhydramine, although there are several others. Antihistamines tend to make people sleepy. Now, there are non-sedating antihistamines that we take during the day, but the sedating antihistamines are what tends to be in the sleep aids at night. The problem with them is it can dry your mouth out. For some people with asthma, it can cause dryness of the secretions. 
And for some people, they have a hangover the next day that they feel groggy simply because it's metabolized too slowly. Those medications may need to be adjusted based on the tolerance that the individual has. I think this is the rule of thumb for everything we've talked about is the individual has to understand what a specific substance or habit is doing for them, and then they have to optimize the chances for sleeping based on doing that as long as it's a safe option. Is this a safe option, though, long term? We don't know. And once again, most people don't take the -the over-the-counter sleep aids for their entire lifetime. So when you look at the variability of what people do, there are not longitudinal studies that say long-term, is this an okay thing? There are people that take prescription sleep aids. And we know, because we've seen years and years of continuous use, that they can increase dementia. And so one of the concerns about long-term use of prescription sleep aids is that it's probably not a good idea for your brain health in the long term. The ones that are so heavily marketed. Yes. And marketing is a big part of this. We know that lavender has a soothing effect. So using lavender has been marketed a lot. There are lavender oils that you can use. If it works, that's great. There's no research that says aromatherapy works for some people and not for others. We just don't know the group that it'll help. Once again, it's a safe thing to do. If you can save yourself from using a prescription sleep aid or a medication that's potentially harmful to your health, I think all these aids can be helpful. We generally recommend that if people have difficulty sleeping, rather than taking a sleep aid forever, they should seek an evaluation to find out why they're having difficulty sleeping and try to target it with something that's not a drug, even if the drug is an over-the-counter preparation. Diagnosed sleep disorders. What are they? You mentioned that insomnia is not... It's not a disease. It is a diagnosable disorder, but it comes from something. When somebody comes to you and says, I tried everything, well, maybe they have, maybe they haven't, (laughs) but they think they have a sleep disorder. What are diagnosable sleep disorders? Just to go back, when people have trouble falling asleep, there are specific things that we think about. Caffeine use, side effects from medications, substance abuse, racing mind, going to bed too early, having too much activity right before bed, not having a bedtime routine, having too much light in the environment. So consequently, there are initiation insomnia items that we screen for when someone says, I have trouble falling asleep. That's different than having trouble staying asleep. So if you fall asleep but keep waking up during the night, there's something that's waking you up. So many of the sleep disorders that we diagnose are related to difficulty staying asleep. Sleep apnea, snoring, physical discomfort, acid reflux, nasal congestion, someone in the bedroom that's disturbing your sleep. In other words, a bed partner who snores or who kicks their legs significantly. Children coming in and waking you up. Animals coming in and waking you up. So there are many things that have to do with maintenance insomnia. And that's what I mean by insomnia is not a disease. It's coming from something. So eliciting an extensive history is part of what we do with people that have insomnia to find the cause rather than just taking a medication. I see many patients that have been taking medication for years and they want to get off of the medication. And so they finally come to a sleep doctor to get an assessment for other options or to determine the cause of the insomnia. As we mentioned before, there are 85 different sleep disorders, probably more than that because there are new ones being discovered all the time. Some of them 
can cause wake-ups during the night. Some of them just interfere with the quality of sleep. So part of what we do is the consultation, which is fairly extensive in getting a complete history, and doing testing to determine what's actually happening during sleep. Most people that come to a sleep specialist that we see in the office are coming because they are excessively sleepy during the day or because they're snoring or having breathing disturbances. The other large group are people who have medical problems and the doctor has determined that it may be secondary to a sleep disorder, such as high blood pressure that's difficult to control, diabetes that's associated with high blood sugars in the morning. Typically, your morning blood sugar would be lower because you haven't eaten all night and you've been resting and your cortisol levels should be low. But when people have an elevated blood sugar in the morning, more so than later in the day, there's something that's driving that blood sugar up. So frequently, an endocrinologist who's a diabetes specialist will refer a patient for evaluation. So there are a variety of medical reasons that doctors may choose to refer someone. Heart attack, heart failure for no obvious reason, chest pain that's been difficult to determine why it's happening, especially if they're waking up during the night with chest pain. Some of the heart patients have a monitor called a Holter monitor that records the heartbeat for the whole 24 hours. And sometimes people have irregularities that are happening only during sleep hours. So then the question is, what's happening during sleep that's causing the heart to be irregular? And this is part of why people would be referred to a sleep specialist. So the common reasons are excessive sleepiness, snoring, and suspected sleep apnea. Most people are sleep-deprived because of behavioral aspects. The social media, pushing the laundry back to bedtime, taking care of children, and frequently it's just what people call me time. So after you've taken care of all the responsibilities of the day, you just want some time while awake to relax. And so those folks may watch television or read or go on the internet and go to bed later than they should. So they have the ability to get more sleep simply behaviorally without medication. On the other hand, for people that have insomnia, that's a problem already. If they need to take medication to help them sleep better, then clearly it's more than just sleep deprivation. Your patients would be referred by their physicians. People that have significant difficulty sleeping and they've tried various things and they can't solve it should make a specific visit with their primary doctor to exclusively talk about the sleep issue. And then the doctor has the time to discuss some of these issues and determine whether a referral to a sleep specialist is needed, whether they simply need to have some, some minor advice or perhaps whether an over-the-counter preparation or some behavioral changes could make a difference. So the primary is really the first line. Years ago, there was an article published in Annals of Internal Medicine that essentially said, the average primary care doctor will spend about two to three minutes discussing insomnia issues and almost everybody gets a prescription sleep aid but it's not getting to the problem. And this is part of where people get into the long-term habit of taking those medications. People can build up a tolerance to the medication, in which case it's not working anymore. Then you increase the dose. Then you switch to something else. So frequently, by the time the sleep doctor sees the patient, they've been through multiple medications. They've developed tolerance to multiple things. And consequently, it becomes a more difficult problem. So should the primary refer to the sleep doctor sooner? Maybe. I think it depends on the knowledge and experience that the primary has dealing with sleep disorders and the tolerance that the patient has 
in taking medications that are prescribed versus trying to solve the problem with non-pharmacologic solutions. The awareness that people have about the importance of sleep has certainly improved significantly over the past 5, 10, 15 years. So many people are self-referred, so they will look up on the internet or the phone book where there are sleep doctors, what can be accomplished with a sleep doctor, and then they will make an appointment on their own. Sometimes an ear, nose, and throat doctor will refer because the individual has chronic snoring that's been determined by the ear, nose, and throat doctor, that they may have large tonsils and they're heading for um, a surgical procedure. We get referrals from bariatric surgeons, so people that are presenting for weight loss surgery are frequently evaluated for sleep apnea by a sleep specialist before the procedure is done to make sure that they are safe and to determine whether sleep apnea is a comorbidity that's existing with the obesity. Uh, we see referrals from cardiologists. We see referrals from primary doctors. At Deborah, we see referrals from the military base, the primary doctors at the military base. The referrals come from a variety of directions. Well, wherever a patient is coming from, what's their experience? What do you do? So the initial experience is to have an office consultation. And at this time, we do a physical examination. We take a comprehensive history of the sleep problems of psychological issues, of medical issues, anything that could be impacting on their sleep quality. And there are, there are many, many things. If we determine that a sleep study would be helpful, then we will order a sleep study. Now, the sleep study is called a polysomnography, and this is an in-lab monitored sleep study. There are many disorders that can be diagnosed with a polysomnography because we are monitoring a variety of parameters. We are monitoring EEG, which monitors the brainwave activity. So we can determine if you're awake or asleep, and we can determine what stage of sleep you're in, and if you're progressing through the stages of sleep the way you normally should. We can determine if you're getting enough REM sleep, and if you're getting enough what we call deep slow wave sleep or delta sleep. So the EEG is extremely important for people that have disrupted sleep or sleepiness during the day to determine, is the brain able to get into those stages of sleep properly? If not, we are monitoring other information simultaneously that will hopefully tell us why the sleep is disrupted. That includes monitoring airflow with a little nasal cannula, kind of like people that use oxygen when they're in the hospital. We monitor oxygen levels with a Band-Aid type device on the finger. We monitor effort to breathe to see if someone is struggling to breathe. So this is information that tells us about differentiating snoring from mild, moderate, or severe sleep apnea. We're monitoring heart rhythm so we can see if there's an imminent irregularity that's happening and if it's related to drops in oxygen levels or if it's completely independent. So some people that are preparing for a pacemaker, the question is, is there something that can be treated that will eliminate the problem with the heart rhythm or do they need to have a pacemaker? So by doing the overnight monitoring, especially for people that have been found to have irregularities in the heart during sleep hours, this can be very helpful for the cardiologist to know whether there's a reversible issue with that or not. And we also monitor leg movements. So there are little sticky pads on the legs. And this is helpful to look for restless legs type of symptoms, periodic limb movements in sleep, restless sleep, position changes, Restless legs is a symptom that people have when they're awake, but the corollary to that is leg jerks, leg twitches, 
irregular movements during the night. That sometimes can warn you of seizure disorders, but sometimes it's related to breathing disturbances or periodic limb movement disorder. It's important to know that the overnight polysomnography is completely non-invasive. You spend one night in the sleep center, there are no needles, no x-rays, no dye injections. It's kind of like a hotel with wires. It's not an inpatient hospital room. It's a room that's specially set up to look like a hotel or to try to help you feel like you're actually at home. If the insurance does not approve an in-lab monitored sleep study, the alternative that we have at Deborah and in many places is a home sleep test. Part of the reason is that the home study is much less expensive, but it also has much less monitoring. So the home test is designed to determine if someone has apnea. It is only recording airflow, oxygen levels, and effort to breathe. Some of the home testing units also record body position. The Deborah units do. Some people have sleep apnea only on their back and not on their side. So by including the positional data on specific home testing units or on the polysomnography in the lab, we're able to determine if there's a specific problem and if positional therapy, in other words, don't sleep on your back, can be one of the modalities that you use to help control the snoring and sleep apnea. After that testing is completed, the sleep doctor will go over those test results, discuss treatment options, and then a treatment plan will be determined. And frequently, we will find more than one problem. And so all of those problems need to be addressed, and they need to be addressed in an appropriate sequence. Who is carrying the ball at that point? say a patient has self-referred, say, all right, this needs to go to your primary care and these need to now be addressed, or is your team handling that? For most people with sleep apnea, the sleep physician will continue managing the patient because there are various treatment options that are available. CPAP is the gold standard treatment for sleep apnea. And CPAP is a little mask that you sleep with at night. This is not an oxygen machine. It takes air from the room and gives it back under pressure to hold the airway open. So as soon as the CPAP is started, literally the first night that you use it, all snoring is gone, all apnea is gone, oxygen levels are restored, sleep quality is better, and people typically feel better. After about a week, they have restored some of the sleep deficit that they've had from not breathing properly. The problem with CPAP is it only works when you wear it. It's like my glasses. So it's not that you put it on one time and you're cured, but it is a non-invasive, completely reliable modality for treating sleep apnea. The sleep physician orders the CPAP machines and then follows the patient for the sleep apnea at appropriate intervals. That may be uh, once a year. It may be every six months. It depends on the individual and how well they're doing. The other option is an oral appliance, which is made by a dentist. If people choose to do that, they would be referred to a dental practitioner that makes oral appliances for snoring and sleep apnea. Weight loss is an option, so some people will choose to pursue weight loss and then come back for a follow-up visit and sometimes a repeat test. So much of that management is done by the sleep specialist. There are some things that can be done by the primary. For example, people that have restless legs. Typically, we check certain blood work, such as iron levels and B12 levels, because deficiencies in those areas can cause restless legs, and try to replace that. The supplementation and the repeat blood work can certainly be done by the primary. 
Prescription medications can be very helpful for restless legs. Once we get the appropriate dose, the primary can follow that individual for the medication or the sleep doctor can follow them. So there are certain things that can be referred back to the primary, but most primaries are not ordering CPAP machines and not following the CPAP component of the, of the treatment. So if somebody wants to find out more about disordered sleep, whatever their sleep questions are, how do they get in touch with your team? If the insurance requires a referral, they would need to be referred by their primary doctor. For anyone that's interested in, in self-referring for a sleep evaluation, Deborah has a website called demanddeborah.org. And on that website, you can see the various physicians on staff, and you can see the sleep specialists, and and that can link you into how to make an appointment. I'm Rosa Kay, and I've been talking with Dr. Marcella Frank. She's an attending pulmonologist and sleep medicine specialist at Deborah Heart and Lung Center in the heart of central New Jersey.